Section 49. Go get this rock. Execs don't think Office 9 is exciting enough or soon enough. John Devon to me in late 1996. Planning Office 9 was going to be difficult because it was the first time we would plan a release from the start as a suite. We soon realized most other groups thought Office was being disrupted by the internet. Disrupted, as I will explain, was all the rage in business jargon. To address this challenge, or I should say inevitability, Office needed to navigate external competitive forces and internal strategies that conflicted with each other, even before taking into account what Office might do for customers strategically or technically. Windows existed in a parallel world where the Windows 95 consumer code base was almost entirely engrossed by the internet, while the NT code base, one designed for business and IT, was working to add a modern graphical interface and then build up compatibility with the consumer ecosystem, a project that would take three releases and six years. The server products, such as Exchange and SQL, were built around IT as the buyer and the user, which led to a world exclusively about the enterprise, where embracing internet technologies had a less urgent need. Windows Server, the core platform product, had a clear mandate to be a great World Wide Web server, building on the early work of Internet Information Server, which was itself in a bare-knuckle competitive race with both Netscape and the open-source Apache Web Server, both of those primarily running on Unix and now increasingly Linux. Office 97 finished the last consumer release, and as a team, we were in the process of figuring out how to focus on enterprise customers, while also recognizing that our buyer was IT, but our user remained the individual or workgroup. Our internet plans were based on what we had started years earlier. Apart from Outlook, which was in the process of its sudden embrace of internet protocols, resulting in the off-cycle release separate from Office Suites. Nevertheless, in many markets, Office was going to remain a consumer or retail business for some time to come, especially Japan, which was approaching half of our business. With the organization above me in flux and the executive overseeing the Office organization during Office 97 changing a couple of times, I discovered that sometimes there was opportunity in chaos. During this time, I experienced my own evolution as a leader learning to be focused on the team and getting the product built, while stuff above me just sort of happened. I began planning the release in my role as program management leader for the office product unit, OPU, but finished the release as the general manager and then vice president for the entire office suite, though none of the big reorg issues ensued. My manager was John Devon for the entire release as he endured the changes above him, and diligently worked to minimize the impact of the chaos on the Office team. There was no way we would have finished Office 9 without that support. The online version includes the fall 1997 Microsoft org chart as compiled by a third party. As a program management team, we held offsites for several months prior to Office 97 shipping. I scheduled one to kick off the process of buy-in from upper management. I structured it in the way I believe the platform's culture, our new executive leadership, preferred, which was a series of slide decks presented by area experts with interaction and discussion, including a deliberate description of product architecture. This differed from how Office usually handled offsites. I saw these cultural differences in working across teams as Bill G's technical assistant and knew how important it was to have discussions culturally in sync, even if I did not always do a good job myself. 
The plan was to have Brad Silverberg, now John Devon's manager and senior vice president of the Applications and Internet Client Group, and Paul Moritz, Brad's manager, the group vice president of the new Platforms and Applications Group, which was everything but MSN, as it attend, as well as my manager, John Devon, and his reports, plus the group partner managers, the product leaders across office, and also several teams from Windows and across platforms, and of course, marketing. But then a wrench was thrown into planning. John Devon told me that the Office 9 plans were creating angst among the executives. This was a bit puzzling and somewhat scary because the plans were not known broadly or even complete. Actually, we didn't have any plans at all, and the product hadn't even officially started the schedule yet. How could they also already be concerned? And about what? In John Devon's office on the third floor of Building 17, we grumbled about the challenge of office being managed by systems execs. We felt similar to a couple of years earlier, sitting together in that very same office, pondering the idea that the apps team said we, in office, lost our marbles before we even finished a successful but late Office 97 product. This was different, though, because as John relayed, Office 9 wasn't exciting enough or soon enough, so it seemed. We were told the rest of Microsoft felt like Office didn't get the Internet and was not embracing the future. It was those kinds of vague assertions that made their way to us. I felt certain that I had credibility when it came to internet religion. What could such feelings about the team be based upon? There were forces at work, or more aptly worded, criticisms of Office based on nascent technologies that might prove competitive. Innovator's Dilemma, the seminal 1997 book by Harvard Business School's Clayton Christensen, was fresh off the presses, and like every large company facing the internet, the book's lessons were immediately extrapolated to the strategic challenges posed by the internet. The original article upon which the book was based, Catching the Wave, was widely distributed among teams at Microsoft. The book was not without controversy when it released, and increasingly so as time passed. The disruptive force as it related to Office was the internet and what brought it brought to productivity and document creation. Unlike the concrete examples in the book, such as the switch to 3.5-inch hard drives from 5.25-inch ones, there was no lower-priced, less-functioning product competing with Office yet. Office did not understand the internet, so our bosses seemed to suggest. I had apparently lost my marbles. Every discussion would somehow come back to the new and ever-present theory of disruption, though everyone seemed to have a different interpretation of the book. Yet, there we were, facing our own management team. In the context of planning Office 9, we were being told Office was being disrupted. It was not a question of if or when, it was happening right now. In the system's way of developing a strategy, problems were generally distilled down to specific technologies or architectures that would be used to out-architect Microsoft. The conversation almost always started from the technology end state, and from that basis, one countered. Communication challenges would arise when the discussion turned to or started from scenarios or customer perspectives. Disruption facing office was not a specific product or technology, but the way future products were being built or contemplating being built. Somewhat like Christensen's steel mini mills, office faced a technology challenge. Our technology approach was customer focused, not technology focused. Still, thinking from a customer perspective did not preclude technology. Rather, we faced the belief that technology defined the starting point and context for the conversation, not the end point in solving customer or market problems. It should be no surprise 
but technology-driven is what makes sense for much of an operating system. The different focus is not a problem, rather it is why Microsoft had two wildly successful businesses. Even to this day, there remains a nuance to this heated topic. Every company, especially mature and successful ones, claim to first and foremost listen to customers. Whereas every new startup is almost always highly technology-driven. As we will see, Office was and remained customer-focused while making significant and seemingly anti-customer bets on major technologies. Systems would continue to be primarily technology-focused, which both served it well and also created challenges within the team and for Office. There were numerous technologies in play that were, as we came to say, poised to disrupt Office. Key among them were the browser, network computers, Java, and components. This might all sound like jargon or at some level interchangeable buzzwords of the era. And to those who know the jargon, these might might not sound like particularly discrete choices. But the importance of having a strategy discussion based on each of these technologies was key. Each one of these technologies was deeply important to a different part of the overall product organization at Microsoft. Each was viewed as the most important competitor for at least one part of the company. As I discuss these, it is important to consider that the technologies, while related, were at an important level mutually exclusive. We could only build Office once and had to pick a way to build the product. Office was being disrupted, but by which one of these? It also meant we were, by definition, currently building Office on the wrong technology for the internet. Could it be that using Windows was wrong in 1997? The problem was not just that we were wrong at the start, but we would have to pick up one approach from several, and in the process, we would still be wrong for some executives and their view of disruption. How could we possibly align? Importantly, every division wanted Office to align with and validate its strategy. We took this responsibility seriously. Even small things like what version of Windows was required by Office were galactically important. The teams building new versions of Windows wanted us to require the latest version because doing so drove new PC sales through PC makers with a one-two punch of a new Windows and new Office together. The newly powerful enterprise sales teams wanted Office to run on existing operating systems and the installed base of PCs. At any given moment, about 30% of our customers were on the one before the previous version of Office, in this case Windows 3.1 and Office 4. 30% were on the previous one, Windows and Office 95. And then in about two years, the rest would be on the new Office 97, probably with Windows 98 and a little bit of Windows NT in the enterprise, all just in time for Office 9. Repeat this for every new technology, and you could start to see how difficult it became to release new capabilities that required a new OS and a new PC and a new version of Windows. We were already stuck and didn't even realize it. First among technology equals was the browser. There were advocates that believed productivity tools like Office hosted in the browser were imminent, and Office's days running on Windows were numbered. In early 1997, HTML was made up of a collection of about 20 formatting elements and the programming language JavaScript that was about 18 months old. Both experienced over a 56K dial-up connection for most people. Internet Explorer supported both JavaScript and, of course, Microsoft's own VBScript. Microsoft would tiptoe around the strategic choice for scripting, and the launch of JavaScript was one of the earliest 
anyone but Microsoft, ABM, moments in the browser battles. The market made its choice of scripting languages clear with JavaScript the obvious winner. Office was already iterating on saving documents to HTML and making progress there. Still, many thought the combination of the latest HTML version 3.2 and scripting, along with future browser enhancements, meant the replacement for Office was looming. The online version includes the press release announcing JavaScript in December 1995. PowerPoint was a canonical example of an Office app to be replaced by HTML. As it turned out, a dozen different sites were doing pages that from 10 feet away looked like a slide creation program. The ability to make big title text with bullets was grabbing attention. Unlike PowerPoint and Windows, where most people use the default look reminiscent of colored television with a gradient blue with yellow text, these new browser slides had cool texture backgrounds like fabric or marble and blinking title text. Thank you, Netscape, for that one. These were absolutely trivial slides, and there were no real tools for editing. In fact, these worked by typing in lines of text into a form or a series of five text boxes and clicking the submit button, and the slide would come back as an image with just bullets and text added on the image. The image didn't scale to full screen, and most of the time picking the size of the image was done at create time. PowerPoint, however, was going to be the first victim of the browser, or so it was suggested. Reading this, one might say that of course this happened. Evidence today's Google Workplace apps. Two decades is a long time. That's like saying the iPod was going to come along and disrupt the Walkman, so the Walkman team should have just given up long before the iPad arrived. Still, Google today has not commanded more than a small slice of the productivity tools business dominated globally by Office. Whether that is still changing or not only strengthens the point about the timescale we're talking about. As this book shows and will show, frequently being early is not always the best path. Netscape was already building email, and that was going to displace Outlook, as it was put bluntly. There was more credibility in this only because Outlook lacked support for standards and was still far from the most loved product in Office. Byzantine, as it was called in reviews. Netscape was building an internet-native email client, not unlike the current favorite, Eudora, that the internet mail and news app, Outlook Express, was competing with. Rumors were swirling about a word processor and tools for collaboration based on a significant acquisition Netscape made. I was concerned. Netscape was a force. We were already on edge about word processing with the rise of email, which is why we did so much to integrate Word and Outlook. A word processor that shipped with the browser was exactly the strategy the Office team proposed at the company's very first internet offsite. The online version has an article from InfoWorld in January 1997. Netscape suite looks promising. For the rest of our internet division, however, the browser was everything. Having Office commit to the browser was not only good for Office, but would enhance the unique, proprietary aspects of Internet Explorer that Office would use to deliver a product in the browser. I was not alone in questioning the maturity of the browsers to build document creation tools. Sun Microsystems introduced a new programming language called Java, that addressed the lack of power in the browser to create full-featured applications. Java was a great deal of attention from enterprise IT strategists because it came from Sun, leaders in the server world and main competitor to NT, and because Java more closely resembled the client-server world they were used to. 
In many ways, Java was viewed as the successor to Microsoft's Visual Basic, with the added benefit that Java was touted as, quote, write once, run everywhere. This, which meant that it worked on any computing platform. Enterprise IT loved to hear about technologies that would avoid platform lock-in. The theory of Java was just that. Adding to the strength of that message was the rebirth of IBM under CEO Lou Gerstner as a company free of the shackles of proprietary technology and open to supporting all the popular platforms. IBM was all in on Java and emphasizing it as a key technology across their product line. The embrace of all competitive or alternative technologies as a way of leveraging account control was now the IBM playbook and one that threatened to slow down Microsoft's emerging opportunity in enterprise accounts. The online version has an article from InfoWorld, February 1997. IBM embraces Java everywhere. And as you'd see in the article, that was literally everywhere. John Devon and I grappled with the notion that writing programs in Java was a significant risk to office. It wasn't just technical reservations, but our life experiences. Java was an interpreted language which meant that the programs were represented by code that was converted to native machine code as it ran. Unlike Office, which shipped as fast, compiled native code, as most modern software did. For John, the idea of using an interpreter for programs was close to home. His first job at Microsoft used an interpreter, P-Code as previously mentioned, specifically to write apps once that ran on many computers of the day using as little memory as possible. Microsoft had its own proprietary dialect of the C programming language and an interpreter for an array of different computers. Over the past few years, all interpreted code was removed from Office products as modern operating systems made using an interpreter unnecessary and slow. Interpreted programs made sense when the scarcest resource was memory, which was no longer the case. Finally, the graphical or GUI programming model of Java was strikingly close to the big, fat AFX class library that was thrown out and a huge failure much earlier in my career. The idea that the way to work seamlessly across multiple platforms is to invent yet another platform seemed doomed to failure. In the case of Java, John and I sat in his office reliving the years of our shared experiences, making it difficult to think there was any reality to this technology. Cross-platform, interpreters, big class libraries, what a horrible foundation. Add in the promise of write runs run everywhere, and it seemed obvious that Java was set up to fail as a tool for writing client apps. We'd seen these movies before. Or was it that a warning sign for us to be cautious in generals fighting their battles again? There were at least a dozen different companies building what were casually called Java Office products, including consumer favorite Corel. There were suites of tools, attempted clones of Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and integrated products like Works. There was a huge investment from Silicon Valley venture capitalists to fund Java-based companies, and many of those were going after Office. Like JavaScript, Java was supported by the loose consortium of anyone but Microsoft. The online version includes an article from October 1996, Corel Puts Java to Work. The network computer, or NC as it was called, was particularly troublesome to the Windows operating system team. Larry Ellison at Oracle championed the NC, a simple computer that only ran one program, a web browser. For the NC to disrupt Office, browser-based applications offering some functionality like Office were required. The real fear of the NC was that enterprise customers would adopt it simply because managing Windows PCs was so painful and expensive. 
Paul Moritz and the Windows team, thinking about TCO, spun up an initiative, ZAW, Zero Administration Windows. It was a classic sales tool to solve a deep technical problem. While I was worried about the NC as anyone, from an office perspective, it still required HTML office or potentially Java office, which was, at the very least, a stretch. The NC was a strategic threat for every aspect of Microsoft. The question was, on what time frame, and again, with what technologies? Therefore, Java was enormously important to the developer tools division, where maintaining mindshare of developers was their key mission. In another aspect of embracing technologies, Microsoft released Visual J++ as a part of a family of visual tools side-by-side -side with Visual Basic and Visual C++. Visual J++ was a technical tour de force, but Microsoft was strategically conflicted over embracing it because of the loss of control on the client where Win32 was strategic and on the server where Java could lead to a stronger position for Sun. Microsoft.net was still a few years away on the server. Office was a big user of Visual Basic, and enterprise customers were deeply committed to it for client-server development, at least for the moment. It was clear that Office could not bet on Java for those reasons, but then again, what if Java were to win the market? The online version includes an article, NCs Move Beyond the Hype, from PC Magazine in January 1997. The fourth technology movement to navigate was the idea of components. Components were not a specific programming language or even a technology, but the concept that component technology would replace tools such as word processing and spreadsheets with much, much smaller and lighter components. Components might be viewed as an expression of object-oriented concepts in the context of resulting products rather than programming techniques. Components could be best thought of as basic building blocks of applications from which a customized or full-featured application could be easily created with the benefit of having only the capabilities required, resulting in a reduced need for system resources like memory and disk. Components were a response to the feeling that suites were bloated with too many features no one used, making them inefficient for the enterprise. IBM, who did not have a competitive suite even after acquiring Lotus, was the leader in touting components. IBM repurposed Lotus Smart Suite as components, more sleight of hand than technology. Components were attractive to industry analysts like Gartner, who believed that enterprises might construct purpose-built desktops tailored to workers using components. This type of design was exactly what I saw at the bank in New York when I went to learn about total cost of ownership. Java was the new way to implement components. We were sort of going in circles. That was sort of the point. The proponents of Java did not want to compete with Office, so they created a product strategy that was something Office could not do, even if it wasn't something humans wanted to do. It was confusing. The online version includes an article from November 1996, Lotus Maps Plan for IBM Java Components. To cover all the bases, a newly created alliance of various Java vendors announced a component architecture called Java Beans, to fill in the architectural holes in using Java for components. This technology was aimed squarely at Microsoft's own ActiveX, or earlier called COM. Many in the Microsoft platform's ranks viewed COM as something of the crown jewels of our overall architecture approach. This made competing in component technology even more important. Office already used COM, and it was tightly integrated with Visual Basic. This was a good for strategy. But again, if Java or Java Beans became the defining technologies to disrupt Office, then we would lose out. The online version includes PC Magazine, January 1997, 
Java beans arrive. In addition to technology, the concerns about Office included cultural and process issues, starting with the length of time Office is going to use to create a new release. The Internet Explorer team became quite enamored with the concept of Internet time. Internet time was a key element of the ongoing browser wars, as they were called, between Microsoft and Netscape. Unlike Office, where releases took 24 to 30 months, browsers were being released every 9 to 12 months, at least for the past two years. Any two data points can make a trend. On the face of it, releasing the browser that quickly did not seem risky. The main characteristic of browsers was that they were viewers, and if they crashed, a user could revert to what they were previously reading. No work was lost, unlike if Word crashed. Plus, HTML was designed in a fault-tolerant way, so that any coding mistakes and displaying it on the screen were minor annoyances more than anything else. This relaxed a huge constraint on engineering and certainly made release velocity increasingly possible. That and the fact that these were not big programs yet. HTML and the browser user experience were maturing rapidly. There was so much low-hanging fruit to get right just looking at how other browsers work. Basic and known features like clipboard, printing, accessibility, and more needed to be added. Most of all, everything was new, so there was few predefined criteria for features other than whatever Netscape was doing. To some, this was another point at which Office didn't get the way the world changed. Office needed a new architecture and to release faster. Office 9, the product that few knew about, that even we had not developed full plans for, was not exciting enough because Office was being disrupted. It was also taking too long to get done, even though we didn't have a schedule. To thwart the disruption, we needed to build a new office that was more exciting, but to do so meant solving complex web of technologies and competitors, none of which seemed remotely up to the challenge. Every time I said something like that, I was literally the punchline or punching bag of Innovator's Dilemma or sent another link to a press article about a new startup building office in HTML, Java, components, or for network computers. My emotions ran from angry to upset to frustrated. I tried to figure out how to have this conversation without being the person who said all the new technologies don't work, while also being the person who said Office won't change. That was a dangerous combination when the phrase disruption was being tossed around because such a reaction was literally the one written about in the book. In other words, everything I might have said was going to be viewed through the lens of me playing the role of the executive with his head in the sand. Oddly, I was the one who helped get everyone excited about the internet in the first place. More than anything, that stung. Being painted as the Luddite so soon after running around the company trying to get people excited about the internet? That really hurt. The feedback felt to me was like an allegory of, go get this rock. That was told to me by members of the original land manager team, or Landman, the failed but still legendary network product that was originally managed by Steve Ballmer. The allegory goes as follows. Elder, I wish to be clear and helpful. Go get me a rock. Student, runs to the riverbed to get a rock and picks out a nice one. Here is a rock. Elder, no, not that rock. Try a bigger one. Student, runs again. Here's a bigger one. Elder, yes, but that isn't smooth enough. To the elder, or the manager, this was the process of managing by, I know it when I see it which is certainly one valid school of management. To the student, this was unwanted insanity. The kind of feedback we were getting felt like getting rocks. 
No product approach was right. No technology choice was right. Nothing was soon enough, and it was frustrating. It was, unfortunately, also the default executive management approach. At the time, I was miserable from this and, of course, did not handle it well. This manifested itself in endlessly long email threads, which I feel I achieved a varsity letter in writing. With the benefit of hindsight, this was a product of the uncertainty. No one knew what to do, and everyone was kind of worried. We simply entered a period where the prevailing view was knowing what to do once the right answer was presented. And at that same time, there was a belief that the right answer was higher in the organization where there was more context about the risks to existing businesses. In many ways, this was the innovator's dilemma we faced, all of us. The question, if the new technologies could fit somehow into existing strategies, or we needed a whole new approach. There was also a great deal of Microsoft's universal cultural attribute, paranoia. Writing memos in addition to email became my tool for processing my own thoughts and, in my way, getting my act together for confrontation at worst or at least strategic discussions. Writing was my way of saying, in detail, here's a rock, and a way of documenting promises and commitments in one place for all audiences. It was also a way of saying, this would be a dumb rock and here's why. I wrote a dense 20-page memo called High Hopes for Office 9. This set a tone that was, in hindsight, overly defensive. Caffeinated on Diet Coke and wound up, I banged out this memo in an evening. It served as a precursor to the strategy offsite for Office 9, detailing the main product pillars. I took on all the technology and strategies I could and did not hold back. The online version includes numerous excerpts of the memo High Hopes for Office 9 from January 1997. In the abstract, I needed to find a way to at least suggest that the main technologies being talked about as disruptive to Office might pose a threat, but not in any reasonable time, even though this was tilting at windmills. We already planned to embrace internet technologies. Primarily among these were saving documents as HTML, using HTML as a native file format, connecting Office apps to servers using internet protocols, even using the internet for help, assistance, and content like clipart and templates. Most importantly, we were shifting our resources and efforts to build a collaborative server using FrontPage. All of these relied on internet technologies to solve problems with an office, which was decidedly different than rewriting office in internet technologies. Second, I showed that I understood the attraction of these two technologies was due to deficiencies in office. I then demonstrated how we could dramatically improve the cost of ownership, ease of use, and management of office on PCs by simply doing a better job in areas we had previously paid little to no attention to. I also knew that no matter what happened, someone always said it would. Microsoft was at the scale where regardless of how something played out, someone always wrote the memo predicting it. Nathan Mirvold was even famous for writing multiple memos with conflicting predictions for the same topic. I was not naive, but I was optimistic. Our plan was strong, an internet-savvy plan, but we also knew that the zealots who were convinced the internet was the undoing of office would not be pleased. As I learned from Bill G., there was a benefit to balancing the opinions of the zealots with reality. Balancing the extremes while executing well was, for better or worse, my sweet spot. With my memo presented as a deck at the offsite and the goal of not hurting the morale of the team present, which would undermine plans and execution, for better or worse, the team appeared to feel the same way I did. Looking back, 
It was more that the plans for office were given reluctant acceptance by executives without much actionable feedback. In hindsight, there really was a high degree of uncertainty about what to do, really. And no one, especially executives from platforms new to managing office, wanted to hinder the office business out of the gate. At best, if the project went well, then we could say we all agreed. But if things did not go well, it was obviously my or our fault. I was fine with that level of accountability. In fact, it served us all well. The next step was to have an actual plan, the kind of plan the office team was skilled in delivering and executing.